All right, it's good to be back in the Lord's house this morning. Now let's pray before we start. Father, thank you for allowing us to come to your house this morning. Thank you for uh, meeting with us. As we look into your word today, we pray that you'd open our hearts to understand it. We pray, Father, that you'd speak to us, that the Holy Spirit would be pleased to move among us. As we uh, look at these uh, passages of Scripture, Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand them. Show us what we need to know to be more effective uh, Christians. We pray that uh, you'd bless this time in uh, Sunday school uh, for the 11 o'clock service. We pray you'd be with us there as well, Father. And uh, move among us there. Send those who need to be here today. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week uh, we talked about uh, the inspiration of Scripture. We talked about how um, Scripture, because it's divinely inspired, we can fully trust it to God every every aspect of our lives. Especially, um, um, it, it teaches us everything that we need to know for uh, matters of faith and practice. And we can trust it fully. To read it, we said, was to to have God speak directly to us. And that's that's really the, the case, isn't it? Because this is His Word. It's not just the Word of of human authors that they chose to, to write down in some fanciful afternoon of, of, of penmanship or whatever. So God is speaking to us, and wherever we read it, whenever we read it, it's still His Word, and it always will be, and it's always been established. And we can say that because God inspired it. Well, today I'd like us to go a little bit further and look at two other areas that have to follow along with um, the inspiration of the Scriptures, and that is the, the topics of the inerrancy of Scripture and the infallibility of Scripture. Two things, they go hand in hand, but it's a little different um, definition of these two terms. Um, what they tell us is that the Bible has, has a lack of errors of any kind. It, it, is, it is not erroneous. And, but they go further than that. Inerrancy tells us that there are no errors in Scripture. Infallibility tells us that there wasn't even a possibility for there to be errors when the, the Scripture writers were recording uh, God's Word. And that, that is good to know, isn't it? That there wasn't even possible. When Peter was writing his words, Peter, we know from the New Testament, he was very impetuous sometimes, and he would speak before, almost like before his mind was in gear. But it wasn't even possible for him, even, in that impetuosity to, uh, to record errors. It wasn't uh, possible for David to record errors, or Moses, or Isaiah, or anyone, any of the Scripture writers. So that's good news for us, isn't it? So why, why is it that important? Why is it important that we study inspiration, or inerrancy, or an infallibility? Well, the, the reason it's so important, because all of those things help instill a greater confidence that we can have in the Scriptures because we know at the end of the day that this is God's Word. And we, we have a confidence in the Bible's authority because God is the one who inspired it. It is His Word. We have greater confidence in its accuracy when we learn that there are no errors in it or there wasn't even the possibility of errors. We uh, have greater confidence in its authority. It did come from God and He had the authority to give it to us. And it gives us greater confidence in its relevance. Because we live in a time when people, there's people all around us that, that think, well, that's good. 66 books, you guys like it, but it's just not that relevant for me. It doesn't, it doesn't teach me anything I need to know. And, and we know different, don't we? We know that it is very relevant for us uh, today. It's not just an ancient manuscript or a group of ancient manuscripts. So it's, <clears throat> as we look at these two terms, I'd like us to, to just take a look first at the uh, definition of them. 
inerrancy. We'll start there. That word inerrancy is derived from a Latin root, errare. And that term in Latin, it means this. I'm not a Latin scholar, by the way. This is I didn't even take Latin in school. This is other people's words. But that Latin, that term, uh, that Latin root, errare, it means to wander. Or it means to uh, depart from something. When you put the in prefix to that word, it negates that root. So what you've got, when you say errare, it means to wander or depart from something. In errare means not to wander or not to depart from something. And that's the word that we use where we get our word inerrancy. Biblical inerrancy means that Scripture contains no errors. In other words, it's not departing from the truth. Whatever it gives us is the truth. And so we, we know this. It's God's truth. It doesn't wander at all. Uh, whether it's doctrine that we're studying or uh, historical record, historical facts, we see those in, in some of the Old Testament books, especially um, the, uh, the Pentateuch, and then the historical books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second uh, Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Those are historical records, and so there's no errors there. There's no uh, if we're looking at scientific records that are recorded in Scripture. There's no errors there. The genealogies. There's no errors there. Biblical ethics. There's no errors there. It doesn't depart from the truth, etc. And it goes on and on, etc., etc. All of what the Bible tells us. There's no error there. So the question is, <clears throat> that comes to mind almost immediately, well, well, does the Scripture ever have anything that's not true in it? And the answer is yes. Because the Scripture does, and here, here we're going to qualify this, the Scripture does record lies that people told. But when it does that, it also records where people were deceitful to other people. It records that for us. Um, it records issues of false pretense. But the, the thing we have to remember, it records these things just as a truthful record of the events that took place. It's not God isn't trying to deceive anybody by these words. He just includes the fact that so-and-so told a lie. If you were in conversation and you were talking about uh, something that happened to you, you know, last week, and someone lied to you, well, you would talk, you would tell that, right? If you were recounting the story, this person lied to me. Well, are you? Are you purveying a lie? No, you're just telling, giving the truthful record of it. And that, when the scriptures record lies, that's what it's doing. It's, it's just recording um, what actually happened. Um, the term inerrancy itself is not, it's not a word that's found in scripture anywhere. It's just a very good word uh, or an appropriate term to describe the accuracy of scripture. So it's a word that scholars use. But even though the, the term inerrancy itself is not recorded in Scripture, the Bible does describe the concept of inerrancy. I'm going to read you a few verses, and you don't, you don't have to turn to these. Titus 1 and verse 2 describes God as the one who cannot lie. We know that, don't we? God can't lie. He's, he's holy. He's, he's perfectly truthful. Therefore, He could not inspire someone else to lie or someone to put erroneous information into His text because God who can't lie wouldn't do that. John 17, 17 describes God's Word as truth. Not only in the Scripture record, but in everything God said. Because God, says, God has said a lot of things that aren't recorded in Scripture, hasn't He? All of it is truth. But certainly the words that are recorded in Scripture are true as well, because God does not lie. His Word is truth. Proverbs 30, verse 5, 
says every word of God is pure. And that word pure, it has the idea of something that's been refined, like it went through the fire. And to, to burn off all the impurities or to get all of the impurities out of it. Now, I work, I've worked for 42 years almost in the, in the electronics industry. And, and we have a, there's an example of this when you, uh, when you solder components to a board. Oftentimes they'll take a big bar of solder or multiple ones. They'll put it in a, in a, a wave solder machine and they'll melt it. And when you do that, it, it's, as long as it's pure, it looks like, and you've seen mercury in, in containers and thermostats. It's shiny. It's just this beautiful, shiny surface. But when the impurities begin to burn off of it, they float to the top, and it looks like a dross. And you can take something and skim it right off the top of it. And when you do, it's that beautiful silver color again. This happens in, in the, uh, when people are purifying silver or gold, precious metals, you melt, reach them to the melting point and the, the impurities will come to the top and you can scoop them right off. Well, that's what this idea has here when we're told that uh, God's Word is um, it's pure. It's been refined. Like you, you've burned off the impurities out of it. All of God's words are perfectly true. All of them. They're the, they're, they all have this purity. They all come from a God who cannot lie. And so we've got um, all of his words being pure, those in scripture are included. That's the term of inerrancy. The, the second term is that of infallibility. And that comes again from a Latin uh, root word, falere. And that word means um, liable to deceive or to err from the truth. Again, when you put the N prefix to it, it negates it. So it means, uh, ferere or falere means something that is liable to deceive you. Inferere means not liable to deceive you, not liable to err from the truth or wander away from it or deceive you. So biblical infallibility, here I am stuttering again. I apologize for that. I saw a picture on Facebook the other day. You may have seen this. It, the context was a little different, but someone said uh, it's not called slurring words. It's not called stuttering. It's called speaking in cursive, and it's very classy to do it. So that's what I'm doing. And when, you, when, when I get tongue-tied, I'm just speaking in cursive. That's all it is. So biblical infallibility means that the Scripture writers were incapable of including errors. They, could, they just couldn't do it because God wouldn't allow them. The perfect Holy Spirit superintended as we talked about last word or last week, every word they wrote, every sentence they composed, every paragraph, every book, and he wouldn't allow, he simply wouldn't allow them to include errors in that. That's what biblical infallibility means. So the takeaway we have is the Bible is inerrant. It doesn't have errors because it's infallible. Which means it doesn't have errors because it wasn't capable of having errors. The Lord wouldn't allow them to do it. And the Bible is infallible. That is, it, it wasn't capable of having errors because it's inspired by God Himself. Does that not give you the incredible encouragement or a reliance on the Scriptures? It wasn't possible for it to have errors. And so we can. We can hang the, the hat of our faith on it without any doubt. Now, in, in the matter, or to, for full disclosure, let's put it this way, it was the original manuscripts that were inspired. It was the original manuscripts that were inerrant and infallible. We mentioned this, we talked about this a little bit last week, 
the copies, some copies that scribes would handwrite copies, they may have picked up an error here and there. They may have transposed a character or two. They may have, may have been a punctuation mark or something that was in the, in the wrong place. That may have happened as some copies went uh, were made. But some, in some modern manuscripts that we have now, they show some variations. But as scholars study those and they compare the, the manuscripts, they found that the, uh, any errors in there, any variations, are, are incredibly minor. And by comparing newer translations with older ones, and then with older ones yet, they've been able to find, okay, as, as we progress from this copy to this copy to this copy, right here is where the error took place. And then it kept showing up. So if we go back to this copy, we've got the accuracy back. And so they're able to do that. And, and that's one of the, the important parts of, of archaeology, is they discover older and older manuscripts they can, they can have, make these comparisons, and when they do, oftentimes they're astonished that how, they can, how accurate they can be. How many times when we were in school, look, we, had to, we had to copy things. You have to, for some report, maybe you're writing and you're, 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 you're basing your facts on what you see in an encyclopedia or some reference work, and then you get your report back and your teacher has marked something wrong and said, that's wrong. And when you go back, you think, well, I copied that. That was, that, that was, I found it in my research. And you go back and you look and say, oops, I got the number wrong. Or I got my facts wrong. And we realize we made the error. Well, that's what's happening. Um, people pick up on those errors and they're able to correct them. And by the way, as those errors have been found, none of the foundational doctrines of Scripture have been found to be compromised by them. So why, why, why are there errors at all? Why did the Lord allow scribal errors to be made? Maybe just to show us that we're feeble, we're frail, we are prone to error. But in, even when we make minor errors, He doesn't. He, keeps the, he maintains the integrity of His Word even through those scribal errors. And so we still we know that we have God's Word. The results are, two, two results of this, we can have full confidence in our Bibles because we know they are the Word of God. The second thing that we can know from this is that because we know that we have full confidence because this is the Word of God, we should expect Satan to be persistent in trying to discredit this because he knows we have an absolutely accurate copy as well. And so when you hear about thing, uh, scholars, supposed biblical scholars who start trying to tell you this doctrine is wrong, this, isn't, that, this is not what the Word of God teaches, um, there are errors in there. We know that's Satan trying to discredit God's Word. But you know what? He, he'll never succeed. He'll, get, he'll succeed in getting some people to believe the errors. But there's always a remnant that God has that holds to the doctrines of the Scripture and they continue to teach Him. And we want to be a part of that group, don't we? We don't, we don't want to fall prey for Satan's lies. So those are the definitions. Inerrancy and infallibility. What, why are they important? Well, when we think about them, the two of them in, con, uh, in conjunction with the authority of Scripture, the two go hand in hand. Inerrancy and authority. Infallibility and authority. Those go hand in hand. The logical argument goes something like this. God is the author of Scripture. We know that. He inspired the, the writers. We talked about that last week. Okay, so that's our first premise. God is the author of Scripture. Whatever God says is true without any, any form of error in it. We know that to be the case, don't we? Because we serve a holy God. Next, 
Scripture is God's Word. We've already said God, whatever God says is true. Scripture is God's Word, recorded by His chosen men to write it down. Therefore, the biblical text is without error. If God is the author of it, and everything God says is true, God never makes uh, an error. If Scripture is His Word, then Scripture has no error in it. That's the logical progression. And so it has... When we read it, it has the full authority of God speaking to us. We can't get away from that as much as we'd like to. And uh, sometimes we we read something uh, that the Lord requires of us, and sometimes maybe we wish, oh, so much, that there was an error there. Wow. It tells me I need to do that. Boy, I wish that was an error because that's going to be painful to do that. And yet we know it's God's Word, and so we have to abide by it, don't we? Another reason that it's important is that, that inerrancy and interpretation of Scripture go hand in hand as well. See, we have a knowledge of God's uh, of the Bible's authority. It is God's Word, and therefore it has authority over us because God has authority over us. We are subject to our Lord, and so we're subject to His Word. It gives us a knowledge of uh, the Bible's inspiration, inerrancy. God inspired it. He inspired it without errors. He inspired it without the possibility of errors. That's important. And it also gives us a picture of the eternality of God's Word because it won't ever change. That's what we're taught in Scripture. Not only is this true for our lives, it's true forever, for every generation of Christians. We don't know when the Lord's going to come back. It could be before this Sunday school lesson is over. It could be in another decade. It could be in another century. It could be much longer. Every generation of Christians has expected that the Lord would come back in their lifetimes. But the expectations of Scripture are never going to change regardless of how long that takes. And beyond that, the Lord has said that His Word is established forever in heaven. It will never change. Even after uh, this world that we live in is, is long gone, God's Word will always be established. And we can always look back on it and say, I'm glad I had that when I went through this problem or this crisis. Um, when I had these questions, the Word of God was always there. Even throughout all eternity, when we'll have the Lord Himself, we can still look back on the fact, the days when we had His Word to see us through before we had His actual presence in our lives. This all gives us greater confidence in the Bible's relevance to us and its pertinence. It is very pertinent to my life every day when I get up, and yours too. It is relevant, isn't it? Psalm 19, if you want to turn there, I want to read just a few verses that tell us a little more about God's Word. And it helps to confirm to us what we already know about the Scriptures. Psalm 19, I'm going to start reading in verse 7. I think these are probably very familiar uh, verses. And actually, there's, I can think of at least one psalm uh, where these words are sung. Verse 7 of Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it, aren't you glad that the Word of God can convert us from lost sinners to saved Christians? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Even simple-minded people, ignorant people who don't know much can be made wise by the testimony of the Lord, can't they? Verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right. They rejoice our heart just knowing that there are statutes of the Lord that we are to follow. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. These are speaking God's word. They're more to be desired, are they, than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. 
Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them, there's great reward. There is great reward in keeping the words of God, aren't there? And so, it is important that we understand that not only is God's word inspired, it is inerrant, and it is infallible. It does not have errors in it. There's some, some conclusions that we can, uh, we can derive because we believe that God's Word is uh, inspired, it's inerrant, and it's infallible. And I've got a list of them. And these, I took these from uh, Dr. Harold Wilmington's uh, uh, his Guide to the Bible. I don't know if you've, any of you have ever studied this big, thick book. Uh, it's, it's full of, of really good information. But here's there's seven conclusions that he said we can reach because we believe the Scriptures are inspired and inerrant and they're the infallible Word of God. The first one is, Every bit of Scripture is inspired, but not every bit of Scripture is equally important. Now listen, here's why I say this. Judges 3.16. I want to read this verse to you. But Ehud made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length. It's about 18 inches long. Dagger. And he did gird it under his raiment upon his thigh. That is the Word of God. That is the truth of Scripture. A man named Ehud made himself a dagger and he strapped it on his thigh. That's the Word of God. That's Judges 3.16. Then let me read another 3.16. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Both of those are the inspired Word of God. But do you think both of them are quite as important? How important is it to any one of us that a man named Ehud made himself an 18-inch long dagger and strapped it on his thigh? Is that going to help us any way today in our lives? Not necessarily, other than knowing that is an accurate historical record of what happened. But that verse that tells us God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that one is very important to every one of us, isn't it? And it's important to every lost person. So every bit of Scripture is inspired, equally inspired, but they're not all quite as important. So we need to, we need to learn as we go through our Christian life. Some of them we want to focus more attention on, don't we? Because they impact us directly. A second conclusion we can derive. Inerrancy doesn't allow for false teaching, but it does allow for recording lies told by someone. I mentioned that just a few minutes ago. The example of that is that we can look at is in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden when uh, Satan through the body of the serpent is talking to Eve. And I can imagine how that conversation went. We know what the scripture says. Satan's probably pointing out a tree. That's a really nice looking tree right there. That fruit looks good. Why don't you eat some of that? And Eve said, no, we can't eat of that tree because uh, God said if we eat that tree, we'll, we'll die. And Satan says, you won't surely die. He's recording a lie. Yes, they would die if they ate of that tree. And they found that out. Uh, they found the misery that went along with that. What do we have there? We have the result of an accurate record of Satan's conversation with Eve, include, even including his lies. The caution we have is we have to be able to distinguish between what Scripture records and what Scripture sanctions. It may record the lie of Satan, but it's certainly not sanctioning that we disobey God because of it, is it? It's simply recording what happens. Whether it's, it could be lies, it could be accounts of murder, and yet the Scriptures never condone murder, do they? It may be a recording of events of adultery, though Scripture very much says adultery is wrong. It could uh, be polygamy. Now, we talked about that a few weeks ago with uh, Hannah and her husband Elkanah having two wives. 
That's a recording of something that actually happened. But yet God never said that men should have two wives. God made it clear. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. And it should be that way for life. So it records these things, but it doesn't condone them. They're simply just a recording of facts. And they're accurate facts as they're recorded. So inerrancy does, doesn't allow for false teaching, but it does allow for recording lies or wrong things told by someone. A third thing, inerrancy does not permit any historical, scientific, or prophetical error. None. It doesn't allow for any of those errors. Now we know that um, the Bible is not a science textbook. We know that, don't we? And yet, um, any scientific or any, any piece of information in Scripture that might border on something scientific is accurate. And an example of that, you, um, we've heard this probably many times before, but in the, um, the late 15th century England, or Europe rather, there were a lot of people that thought the world was flat. And if you got on a sailing ship and you went too far in one direction, you'd simply drop off the face of the earth. I can see how people might believe that, can't you? You ever been to Pittsburgh from Graham on Highway 87? That's the farthest trip to go from Graham to Pittsburgh, That one of the farthest things I've ever seen. I used to think maybe you would fall off the edge of the earth before you could ever see Pittsburgh. If you've ever been on Highway 158 going from Reedsville to Yanceville, you will think sometimes, I'm never going to make it. This Yanceville is some mythical place. You'll fall off the edge of the earth before you ever get there. But that's not true, is it? The earth isn't flat. Isaiah 40, 22 referred to God as he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, implying that the, the earth is round. It's a globe. That happened some 2,000 years before the, the uh, Europeans thought their world was flat. So the, the Word of God gave us scientific information, even though it's not a scientific book. So inerrancy does not permit any historical, scientific, or prophetical error. Not a one. A fourth thing, inerrancy doesn't prohibit research. Simply put, God is not afraid of scholarly research that's going to discredit his word. He is not afraid every time an archaeologist starts digging in the Middle East that they're going to find something that proves that Moses didn't exist. Or that um, some other piece of information found in the New Testament isn't going to exist or that it never happened. God's not afraid of that. He, he, does, he welcomes scientific research. And no truly scientific research ever has discredited the Word of God. Every, every so often we'll hear about some new archaeological find though that confirms something that hadn't been confirmed historically before in Scripture. And so there's, there's constantly that information coming across. And so we're thankful for that. Inerrancy doesn't prohibit research. A fifth thing, inerrancy doesn't exclude the usage of pictorial and symbolic language. I've got a couple of examples of that. In Judges chapter 9 and in Matthew chapter 5, there we have an account, both of them, referring to the sun rising. And of course, as it went across, it would fall, right? Now, that, neither of those places are lessons in planetary orbital physics. They simply, they, they're simply uh, poetical or um, just graphic representations of someone standing here and watching the sun, and it sure looks like it comes up in the east, and it rises, and it reaches an apex, and then it starts falling, and then it falls in the east or the west. 
right? There's nothing in Scripture that prevents that kind of pictorial language. Another example, Psalm 91 and verse 4 says that he, that is God, shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. Now we know God doesn't have feathers. We know that God doesn't have wings. It's just pictorial language that shows uh, an image maybe of a hen gathering its, its young under its wings, or her wings, or an eagle gathering her young under her wings to protect them. It's just simply pictorial language. So with errancy, it doesn't exclude that. Because those aren't errors. They're just figures of speech. A sixth um, conclusion we can reach is inerrancy doesn't require the same level of detail in every account of the same events. And we've seen examples of this in the Scripture. In the Old Testament, um, in 2 Kings 21, referring to King Manasseh of Judah, it only shared his, his sinful behavior. And King Manasseh had some sinful behavior. But when you look at the account in 2 Chronicles 33 about King Manasseh, it includes, yes, the accounts of his sin, but it also includes the accounts of his repentance and his salvation. Now, there wasn't any error or any, any kind of uh, deception intended there. There was just more information provided in one account than in the other accounts. There's no error there. It's just two people writing... One of them focuses on Manasseh's sin only. The other focuses on his repentance too, which is a good thing, isn't it? A New Testament example is the uh, a good one is the uh, the placard, I guess you'd call it, that was put above the Lord's head on, when he hung on the cross. All of the all four of the gospel writers mention that, and they mention the wording of it. Here's what they say: Matthew 27. Matthew says. Uh, it, that the, the inscription was, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Mark, in his account in Mark 15, says that the placard read, the King of the Jews. A little different wording, isn't it? Luke 23:38 says, this is, the, this is the King of the Jews. And John 19, 19 refers to it as Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. A little different wording. Of all of the base, the same basic wording, isn't it? A suggested uh, a full text for that would be, "This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews." Now, again, there's no error, there's no deception intended here. It's just that each of the four gospel writers are giving an account of what that text said, of what that placard said, in a little different wording, and that's okay, isn't it? When you tell a story, if you if you're telling a story again of something that happened to you last week, and and you tell it to one person, you're going to tell it a certain way. If a day later you tell the story to someone else, you may describe things in a little different terms. You may leave some details out that you, well, that they're not going to be interested in that detail or something. You're not trying to deceive anyone, are you? You're simply telling the truth in a little different way. Well, that's what we see here in the Gospel accounts and in the Old Testament account of Manasseh. So inerrancy doesn't require the same level of detail in every account of the same events. And yet it is still God's inspired word. It's still um, inerrant and infallible. The seventh conclusion that Dr. Um, Wilmington said we can reach is verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture means that, that God included everything in Scripture that He wanted us to know. Everything. He didn't leave out things. God didn't uh, close the Scriptures and then realize, oops, 
there should have been four more chapters in um, Proverbs. I forgot to put them in there. I'll have to issue another revision. He didn't uh, say at the end of Matthew's Gospel, oh man, I wish I'd had Matthew include these things. That none of that ever happened. God included everything in Scripture He wanted us to know. And here's, here's something we need to remember. He excluded everything else intentionally. There was a lot more. John even, in, even recorded in his writings, if everything the Lord had done were to be written in books, it'd be too many. You couldn't, uh, you know, every library in the world couldn't com- contain them. And so God included everything you wanted us to know in Scripture, and He excluded everything else and said, those don't need to be there. We don't need to know, I don't need to put those in my Word. And so we can fully trust His Word for everything that has to do with matters of faith and practice in our lives. We can fully trust those things. Now, just to wrap up, Satan's always going to have Bible critics, isn't he? Yeah, we see them, we read them, we read about them in the, in the news. Um, Hollywood is really good at trying to discredit the scriptures. Um, sometimes we even hear people of, or we hear of people, even from pulpits, that want to try and tell us how there's an error in the scriptures. I, I don't understand why anybody would stand behind a podium with, with the idea that it, they were preaching the Word of God and then start saying, well, you know, this is an error and we ought to pull this out and this chapter over here, we can't trust that. Isn't that sad? Satan always will have Bible critics. But God's Word will always stand. It's never going to change. It doesn't matter how many critics there are. It doesn't matter how many people uh, complain about it or want to say it's wrong. God's Word will always stand. So I hope that's been helpful. I want to read. I've got a little bit of time left. I'd like to read what some historical figures have had to say about Scripture. It kind of, it kind of gives, us, gives us a flavor of, of how people that we would think are, well, those are, those are reliable people. I want to hear what they have to say. There's a list of U.S. presidents here. George Washington, our first president, said it's impossible to rightly govern the world without the Bible. Wouldn't it be nice to have presidents that still felt that way? Thomas Jefferson third president said the Bible makes the best people in the world. It does, doesn't it? John Quincy Adams, he was our sixth president and from everything I've read and heard about him, he was a very godly man. Uh, He was a devoted Christian. He said the first and almost only book deserving of universal attention is the Bible. Abraham Lincoln, an obscure president that you may have heard of, the 16th president, he said, but for this book we could not know right from wrong. I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. I tend to agree with Brother Abel on that, don't you? Herbert Hoover, the 31st president. Now, this is really obscure president. You rarely hear about Herbert Hoover at all, do you? He said, the whole of the inspiration of our civilization springs from the teachings of Christ. To read the Bible is a necessity of American life. Now, I would really like to hear a president say that again, wouldn't you? There's, uh, here's some... Um, Quotes from men of international influence, we'll say. Ben Franklin. He said, young men, my advice to you is that you cultivate an acquaintance with and a firm belief in the Holy Scriptures. The devil has got critics that are constantly harping on the fact that our founding fathers were ungodly men. Now, I don't know if Ben Franklin was a a Christian or not. I'm sure from things I've read about him, there was some doubt. There's some room for doubt. But to have this opinion about the Holy Scripture says a lot, doesn't it? 
Winston Churchill said, we rest with assurance upon the impregnable rock of Scripture. That sounds like Winston Churchill's kind of word, the impregnable rock of Scripture. We stand on that. Chiang Kai-shek said the Bible is the voice of the Holy Spirit. It absolutely is. A couple of military leaders, General Douglas MacArthur said, Believe me, sir, never a night goes by, be I ever so tired, but I read the Word of God before I go to bed. I would like to serve under somebody like that, wouldn't you? Uh, Confederate General Thomas J. Jackson, we know him as Stonewall Jackson. Again, from what I've read about him, he's a very godly man. He said, God's promises change not. Let us endeavor to adorn the doctrine of Christ in all things. And he led his men that way, from what I can understand. How about some, uh, just a few quotes from some scientists. Sir Francis Bacon said, The volume of scriptures reveal the will of God. That's pretty concise, isn't it? They do give us the will of God. Michael Faraday said, Why will people go astray when they have this blessed book to guide them? Why indeed? Why does anybody go astray? We've got this to guide us. And then an American geologist and zoologist named uh, James Dwight Dana said, Young men, as you go forth, remember that I, an old man, who has known only science all his life, say unto you that there are no truer facts than the facts found within the Holy Scriptures. God's Word is true. It's not going to change. There's no error in it. We can truly hang the hats of our faith on God's Word every day, every, every minute of our lives. So I hope that's been helpful. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank You again for allowing us to look into Your Word. We thank You for the, the, the research that has been done by, by many. Uh, we thank You for the, uh, the testimony of Scripture itself, that it is inspired by You, our Father. You who are true, You whose words are pure, You who are holy and righteous altogether. It's been inspired by You. It's been protected by You. We believe that Your Word is inerrant, that it does not contain errors. We believe it's infallible, that it, it could not. There was not a possibility for it to contain errors. And we thank You, Lord, that it's been established forever in heaven. We have copies of it. We can read it. And we pray, Lord, that You'd give us a desire to do so. We pray that You would draw us closer to it. We pray that, Father, You'd give us a hungering and a thirsting after the things of God. And we pray, Lord, that You continue to give us Bible teachers commentators, those who can help us to understand it. And we thank you so much that living within us as Christians is the Holy Spirit who can enlighten us. He can illuminate the Word of God to us. And so we pray, Father, when, when we find passages of Scripture that might not be so clear to us, we pray the Holy Spirit would come alongside and that He would teach us, that uh, He would show us the things we need to know. And then, Father, we pray that you keep us true to your Word. And we know as we learn what it says, we pray that we'd be obedient to it. And then we would do it not because we're trying to earn your favor, but because we love you and we want to serve you. We pray it now, Father, as we go into the remainder of uh, the services here today, that you bless the time. We pray that you bless our singing. We ask, Lord, that you hear the prayers that are offered from this place. We pray, Father, that you send the people here who need to be here today. And as we look into your word, we pray that you teach us and encourage us. May we worship you today, Father, in spirit and in truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.